Well, in the beginning, in the very beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things, everything you've seen, visible, invisible, were made by Him, and not anything that has been made was without Him, because He is light. Or you could say it like this, John says, He is the life of men. But the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness doesn't understand it. And so he sent a man by the name of John to bear witness to the light. John wasn't the light, but he was sent to bear witness to the light. And this light, this light that lights up every man, this light that made the world, came to the world. He was in the world, and even though the world was made by him, the world did not know him, knew him not. Then he came unto his own, which would be his chosen people, and they received him not. He came to his own, and they received him not. He came to the world, and the world didn't know him. This is the grand narrative of what is going on in history, that Jesus, the one who set up history, made history, it is his story, wasn't recognized by the people in the story. And today, we are going to see this fleshed out in real time, moments before he gets crucified. So if you could turn to Matthew 27, we are going to see how the nations, the world and his people who knew him not and received him not, had blind, utter rage towards him. So the events we're going to read in a second here are going to detail, they're going to detail the last day of his life. I think it's the saddest thing ever written down on paper. They're going to look at the results of when God hands his son over to the world and how we treat him. It reminds me of the modern day horrid movie called The Purge. If you've ever seen The Purge, The Purge is a movie about Letting people do whatever they want to do for a day without any repercussions, without any accountability. And the scripture we're going to read today is like the purge, but he's giving Jesus to the world and to his own, and we're going to see what they do to him. And it is horrible. Starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor And the governor asked him, are you, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so, or it is as you say. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? The obvious choice is Jesus, who is called the Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. 
Besides, uh, while he was sitting in a judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to him, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. That's where I want to end. This is a horrible story. And to try to make any sense of it, Four questions need to be asked. And there are four probing questions so we can better understand what exactly is going on. And how does this even relate to what I began with? He came into the world, the world knew him not, came unto his own, and his own received him not. So we're going to ask these questions. This is the structure. We're going to ask, first of all, what is wrong with Jesus? Why would anybody want to kill him? Because usually when you hand a man over to be killed, there's something wrong with him. Second question we're going to ask is, how do worldly people view Jesus? In this story, we're going to look at Pilate. Pilate is the example of a worldly person. How does he view Jesus? How does your normal person view Jesus out in the world who really has never studied him or learned about him? Third question is, how do religious people view Jesus? In this story, we have the Pharisees and the leaders and the elders who hand him over. What is wrong with religious people, and what does it mean to be religious? We're going to talk about that. And then the fourth question is simply this. What would cause a crowd to crucify him? Why would they go to that length? So let's begin with the first question. What is wrong with Jesus? Why would anyone want to treat him so badly? Before we jump into specifics, I want you to go to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. And the reason why I want to go to Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 gives us an overview of what has been going on in all of history, ever since the beginning of time to now. And it details, in a very general way, what is going on in the hearts of men, and really why they don't like Jesus. It gives us the answer. So Psalm 2 is written by David. It is written in an eternal perspective. That means it's written from God's perspective on the throne. And the first question is this. As he looks around the world, and he looks at people, he looks at nations, they seem to really be angry. That's why it says, why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. In everywhere you go, people are mad. And then he gives the answer in verse 2 and 3. The kings of the earth, that means the rulers, those in charge, they set themselves up. They think they're in control. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against his anointed ones, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. The NIV says, let us break our chains. The NLT says, basically, we are tired of being God's slaves, and we want out. And it's true. Everywhere you look, people are just like that. They're angry. You see it in the city of Portland. Saw it two years in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Every week, some new group is marching in Washington, demanding their rights. The war in Ukraine still rages. The streets and the subways of New York City, Chicago, San Francisco are just... People are mean. Like they do that knockout game where they'll just walk down the street and just punch somebody. What? Why? The brawling at NFL football games, just because you're wearing a different team's jersey, I get to just have a melee with you. We're even here in our own quiet little city of Kent City. Even our little town politics are divisive. People are mad. They're angry. They hate one another. They judge one another. They look slant-eyed at one another. And there's just no peace. What is going on? Well, verse 2 is very clear. People want to be free of the Lord and his anointed. And that's why they don't like Jesus. He is God's king. By anointed, he is the chosen ruler of earth before the world began. God chose Jesus to sit on the throne, and he has been given the role of supreme lord. King of kings, we call him, and Lord of lords. Colossians says, He is the beginning. He is the supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So he gave him the royal throne. He gave his son the royal throne. And it's sort of the way we look at a, a coach who lets his son be quarterback. Just because he's the coach's son, he gets to be quarterback. Or, you know, you got those pageant organizers where the ladies have their daughters win the crystal tiara. Well, it's because it's her daughter. I don't like, it's not fair. And then Jesus sits on the throne because he's God's son. That's not fair. And so people don't want him to rule over them. It says in verse 3, they want to break their chains. They want people to leave them alone and let them do as they wish. Reminds me of this atheist back in the 60s and 70s. His name was Aldous Huxley. And he wrote this. He talks about the reasons and the motives for why he's an atheist. And he said, I have motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. And so I consequently assumed it had none. And was able to, without any difficulty, to find reasons for this assumption. Now he says, I didn't believe it because it first and foremost made sense. He says, I believed it because I objected to somebody interfering with my morality. He says it interfered with my sexual freedom to believe in God. So because of that, he became an atheist. He writes, there was one admirably simple method of confuting these people, these Christians, and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would just deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. 
So in other words, he's breaking his chain by saying, I just don't want to believe in God. And then he sets up a system of atheism to prove it. He's pretty obvious about it. Most atheists aren't. So the question of what is wrong with Jesus is actually answered in this way. There's nothing wrong with him. It's us that has the problem. An interesting uh, commentator on Psalm 2 said, you know what is driving mankind? Why they don't want to be fettered or bonded by God's rule? It's because they're self-absorbed. They love themselves over everything else. 2 Timothy 3.2 says, we are lovers of self. And since we love ourselves, we don't think people, including God, should have any jurisdiction over us. Our mind is ours, our body is ours, and our choices are ours. Why, when you watch pro-abortion rallies, why are they so angry when they hold up their hand and they say, my body, my choice? They're not happy when they say that. They're mad. Who are they mad at? God, or if you ever watched a parade, LGBTQ, that's supposed to be a gay parade. Gay means happy. And they're all dressed in their feathers and their underwear. They're not happy. They're mad. Why are they mad? Because the nations are raging against the Lord and His anointing. Even though He made the world... And he has the right to rule the world as he wants. People don't want to hand over control. And so when he comes to the world and shows up in the flesh, comes to Jerusalem as a baby, then grows up, he lives a really short life, 33 years, and then they kill him. Because they don't want him around. Which goes to the question two. Question two is, how do worldly people view Jesus? He came into the world... And the world knew him not. So by worldly, I'm defining it as John does. Worldly people are people who come into the world in their natural state. We're born in sin, and in sin we're blind to God and his ways. Actually, on our own, Romans says, no one seeks after God. We're not really curious about him in a sense. But if we were curious... Like, Pilate's a little curious here. How do we view him? Well, he's intrigued. In this story, we have Pontius Pilate. He, at the time, was the governor of the area under the Roman authority that Jerusalem fell under. So he was in charge of the politics of Jerusalem. The elders bring to him this man named Jesus because Jesus is causing a ruckus. And in truth, the Jews want to kill him but they have no legal authority to have capital punishment. So they bring him to Pilate because Pilate has the authority. And Pilate honestly just wants to have peace. He really doesn't want to deal with this. And so they bring him to his chambers. They bring Jesus to his chambers. And so Pilate starts asking him questions. And Matthew, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And John, they start talking about truth. Jesus says he's from another realm. And Pilate says, well, tell me, what is truth? And so at first, Pilate is interested because Jesus is intriguing. He's intriguing for the very fact that he owns nothing, 
no home, no place to lay his head, owns no property, and a Jewish minority of Rome wants to kill him. It doesn't make sense. This guy was not a threat. It's not a threat. How could he make the most powerful Jewish leaders so nervous and angry? And so I think Pilate was intrigued. Most historians are intrigued by Jesus. Historians say that nobody of such a low station, Jesus lived in one little town and he didn't travel more than really 50 miles outside of his town in his life. This man has had more books written about him, more colleges and universities started, more churches with his name on it, more organizations started than Jesus of Nazareth, who really didn't do much. And then if you talk to teachers and philosophers, they're intrigued because even though Jesus never wrote a book himself, his words are remembered by more people in the world and are quoted and pierced the heart of more people's souls in the last 2,000 years than any other writer ever. Even C.S. Lewis who was an atheist before he became a Christian, said, you know what caused me to begin thinking? Is he realized that the death of this one rather obscure man that happened 2,000 years ago was the most important event in the history of mankind. And I had to figure out why. So really, if, if a, if a non-believer is honest, he, there's nobody like him. But then what happens is he's confused by Jesus' behavior. So if you look at verse 13 and 14 of Matthew 27, Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they're testifying about you? So they bring him before Pilate. They have all these false accusations, and Jesus says nothing. And Pilate's like, Do you hear? You know, in a way he's saying, Are you going to defend yourself? Verse 14, But he gave no answer. Not to even one charge. So the governor was, he was astounded. He was amazed. He's confused. Why wouldn't you fight back? Why wouldn't you defend yourself? Jesus doesn't argue and fight like the world does. And that is confusing to this world that loves to fight and argue. In fact, one famous statement goes like this. There are many men who came to this world and tried to be God. But there's only one God that came to this world to become a man. Humanly speaking, Jesus makes no sense. No sense. Because the world is full of arrogant, proud, boastful posers who love violence and manipulation to get their way. It's the solution to every problem is to win. And they have a deep desire to get ahead, and there's this never-ending drumbeat. I deserve my rights. I demand my rights. And all Jesus does is he stays silent. He is a puzzle. He is not like the average person. He doesn't fight back. All Jesus does is he stands at the door and knocks. He never barges in. So instead of defending Jesus, how does the world respond? Even though they're intrigued, a little confused, but when they're put on the spot, they're cowards. Worldly people 
by and large, are cowards. Look at verse 22 to 24. Pilate said to them, what shall I do with this Jesus who's called Christ? They said, crucify him. In other words, he didn't do anything wrong. In verse 23, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting, crucify him. And in verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, he couldn't change their mind. But rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of his blood. You guys deal with him yourself. Why does he do that? Because he's a coward. I don't want to get involved. I just want to live my own life. Will you leave me alone? That's how the world is. I just want to be left alone. I want to have my own things. I want to get rich. And will you quit knocking on my door, God? I'm watching TV. Even Pilate's wife was trying to get him to respond, saying, you know, he's innocent. I had a dream about him. Let him go. But the truth is, a decision to abstain to make a choice for Jesus or not, a decision to not make a choice is actually a decision against Jesus. As they say, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So Pilate knew he's innocent, but ah, I, I want out most worldly people the same way when people start bugging them. So you're going to go to that church? <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. I'll just kind of sleep in. I don't need to. You mean you're not going to go party with us? If you party with us, you could, it means uh, you can be our buddy. Oh, okay. Question three, how do the religious people view Jesus? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So by religious, here's, I'm going to define it this way. I'm speaking about people who use religion as a way to get ahead and to make themselves feel good and look good to others and try to look good to God. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law really used the Old Testament law because they believed by obeying the Old Testament law, they were making themselves good. Listen to what it says in Romans 9, 31 to 10, 3. The people of Israel, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in Him and His Son, Jesus. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way, their own rules of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. So you could say it like this. Religious people feel good about themselves the more they do for God. So I'm not here to bash anybody, but there is a day and age if I wore a suit and a tie into church, I'm holy. I'm doing something to look good. But then Jesus shows up. And Jesus didn't necessarily wear a suit and a tie, but inside he was holy, righteous, and true. And he showed up the Pharisees, made them realize they can't compare. Let me explain it for you. Because even Pilate said, oh, they're, they're giving him over to you because they're jealous of you. Exactly. They're jealous of Jesus. 
because he had what they tried to get and couldn't get by obeying. So have you ever heard of a curve buster in class? So let's say you're in class, and I took calculus. I hated calculus. I really hated it. I took calculus, and we had a teacher that mumbled in calculus. I never understood what he said. And we would take the class, and most people in the class would either get 50%, 60%, or 70% on the test. And I usually got 60%, which is a failing grade. 70 was a C minus and a D. 60 was failing. But since everybody got like 60, 50, 60, 70, they would grave on a curve. So people who got 70 got A's, 60 got B's. But the problem is, here's the problem. In my calculus class, we had Joe Rapetta in my class. Joe Rapetta lived for calculus. I, I think he read it. You know how people watch, read books at night on spy mysteries? I think he read calculus books underneath his bed at night because he got an A 100% on every test, and he broke the curve. So it went back to the normal grading system, and I flunked the class because of Joe Rapetta. And I'd walk... I'd walk home, and Joe Rapetta would be up in a sidewalk ahead of me, and I wanted to grab him. You know, he's one of those pocket protector guys. Oh, Joe, flunk the class, and then I will get good grades. Jesus was like that to the Pharisees. He was perfect. He was perfect, and they couldn't take it. So the only way to get a good grade is to kill the one that's perfect. And then you can lower everything, lower all the standards, and man, were they lowered. He exposed their inability, and this does no good for a person's pride. I can remember talking to my grandma about salvation by faith alone in Jesus. I said, Graham, salvation is by believing in Jesus and Jesus alone. And then here's what she said to me. But what about all those years I went to church I gave in the offering, I sang in the choir, I fasted on Fridays during Lent, I said the rosary over and over again. Don't they count? Don't they add to my goodness? No, because compared to Jesus, everything we do is like filthy rags. So instead of worshiping Jesus as king, religious people had him killed so they could continue in their religious charade. And a lot of church is charade. It's a game of costumes where Jesus says, take off the costume and be good on the inside by accepting Christ, who is your righteousness. He comes in you through the Holy Spirit and takes over your life. Proud people don't like this, which leads to question number four. And I'd say, uh, what causes the crowd to crucify God? And it might be, this might be the most obvious but hardest thing to recognize in a human heart. And it is this. In a human heart, before the Holy Spirit comes in, it is easier to follow the mob and to follow the mob mentality than to think for yourself and no longer conform. It is easy to be one of the mob than it is to stand alone on your convictions. The flesh is weak. 
It is why cancel culture works. Hey, if you say something that not everybody agrees to, you're canceled. Oh boy, I better say something everybody agrees to. Have you ever heard of the zebra principle? I was watching this uh, animal show. And they were saying most animals to have for a defense mechanism, they'll either have claws or they'll have fangs or they'll have poison. But zebras don't have any of that. But what they have is they have stripes, black and white stripes. And the reason why is the way they defend themselves is they all get into a group together so they all look like one giant animal. So a lion comes on and all the animals have black and white stripes so they all look like one giant animal. And in the mind of a lion, I can't take on that monster animal. But if one little, little zebra gets out alone, he's dead meat. He doesn't want to wander out there. That's how it is for the flesh. If I stand on convictions, if I go to work and I tell people I believe in Christ, I'm dead meat. So I better just agree and be like everybody else and not think. That's the mob mentality. Collectively, the mob is determined always by the lowest common denominator. Always. The base instincts always rule because they're the easiest to adopt for everybody. It's sort of like this, like why, I, before I was a Christian, like a lot of people come into the church and say, you know, the, you know the bar is a much friendlier place than the church. It's like a cool thing to say. The bar has people that are so much godlier than Christians. Do you know why? Because if you're drunk at the bar and you go pick somebody up, nobody cares. There's no standard, so it's easy. It's the lowest common denominator. Everybody's happy, especially if you buy another round. But at the church, we are trying to glorify a person named Christ who's holy, pure, beautiful, wonderful, good. And there's standards of behavior. It's not that we're judging you. It's that we are called to a higher life. But for the crowd, they just... They want to be safe, so they're easy to manipulate. So if you noticed, they were urged on by the Jewish leadership to release Barabbas. Truth is, lies always come down from the top. They always come down from the top, and usually they are swallowed by the mob without not much thought or effort. If those in charge say so, it must be true. That is why most political talking points are rather easy based and mindless. They say something that, I'm for clean water. Well, I'm not. That's so stupid. That's how politics works. That's how advertising works. Advertising always goes to the mob's base instinct. You need to buy that product. Well, why? Because you deserve it. You're right. I deserve that. I'm going to go buy that. It's going to make me broke, but I deserve it. Yes, you're right. You need to buy that. Why? Because you're worth it. You're right. I'm worth it. Don't do that because it puts you in debt. Oh, hey, get out there, zebra. Well, I'm here with the rest of the zebras. I'm worth it. It's mob mentality. Have it your way. You're right. I need to have it my way. It's, it's the world of self-absorption is where the mob lives. Appeal to the flesh, and the mob will come running. In this case, to release Barabbas, 
Barabbas was, um, there's a lot of questions about who Barabbas was. Was Barabbas just this bloody killer? Some people just say he's a bloody, no good killer. If you ever see church plays, usually he's just rotten, you know, real gnarly, just like Jack the Ripper. But there's some question about, no, maybe really if you look at him historically, he was a zealot, which means he wanted the Jews to be free from the rule of Rome. So he was a rebel and a hero to the Roman, you know, basically the Roman oppression. One writer said he was probably looked at like Robin Hood kind of figure. He was a man's man willing to kill some Romans to set Israel free, a political hero. He's willing to do anything to procure freedom through violence. He's like Spartacus or the 300. And at the most basic of levels, fallen humanity respects those who use violence to get their way. They love it. And who do all negotiating by their fists. Chuck Norris is more appealing than a kind of a kind person of reason and patience. Because you've heard how Chuck, when he does push-ups, he's not doing push-ups with bodies pushing the earth down. He's that strong. Ah, oh, that's a guy I can follow. That's Barabbas. The mob loves the person who comes to kick some A while taking names, man. It's like that Boy Named Sue song by Johnny Cash. Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean. My fists got hard and my wits got keen. Roam from town to town to hide my shame. But I made a vow to the moon and stars. I'd search the honky-tonks and bars and kill that man that gave me that awful name. Go get him, Johnny. That's my kind of guy. It's called the will to power, and it is a powerful motive. Even our movies, love, revenge, and dominance, and even like the most, what they call the most empowering new show for women, it's called The Woman King. And The Woman King is equal to men precisely because she can kill just as fiercely as men. It's the will to power. That motivates the crowd. And the crowd, even today, is moved by those same motives. That's all politics is. It's carnality without responsibility. And you can't get more animalistic or base than that. I've told this story one time, like, um, I was just thinking about it. Because it makes me laugh. It's a perfect illustration. There was a guy who joined our football team freshman year. He's really skinny, goes to practice for a couple days, got beat up like crazy, get tackled. So he quit the team after about three, four days. About a month later, this new truck comes into our parking lot at the high school. And it's, it's on, jacked up, you know, and it's got these lifters and the carbs off. So, boom, 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 like it's like black smoke's coming up. But it's cool. It's cool. And everybody gathers around. Who is in this truck? And out comes this little skinny kid who got kicked off the football team three days earlier. As if, man, because I can press an accelerator, I'm something. That's the crowd. Crucify. So easy. So easy to be in a crowd. Why do we crucify Jesus? Well, to the crowd, he's not like us, man. He wants to set himself up over us, and he's a goody-goody. He thinks he's better than all of us, so he must go. Did you ever notice how fickle the crowd is? A week before this, they were crying Hosanna to the king. That's one thing about the crowd. You start following the crowd... They're going to take you places you never wanted to go in the first place because they're fickle. They don't live in conviction. 
Hosanna to the king. Now they're sneering and saying, crucify the creep. I wonder, who really rules the crowd? Is it the people in charge, or do you think Satan might have something to do with it? 1 John 5.19 says, We know we are children of God, and that the whole world around us is under the control of the evil one. That's why the mob hates God. And they're easy to control. And the question is, are you? Are you? So we come to the end of this section. And um, I want to read what, when God is handed over, what do people do with Jesus? So when Jesus is handed over to the world and they're given control over him for a day, how do they treat him? Are they fair to him? Are they reasonable? Are they full of grace and mercy like he is daily to us? How will we treat Jesus when we have total control? Verse 27. Actually, starting verse 26. So Pilate released them. These Barabbas gave Barabbas and gave them to Jesus. And having scourged Jesus, scourging is where you just beat him to a bloody pulp with a rod. They even whipped him. Having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. So all of these sneering guards. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked. saying, Hail, Hail, King of the Jews. Wonder what the mockery sounded like. Oh, it's the King of the Jews. Hail to him. Don't think they said, Hail him. I don't know what they said, but it was mockery. They mocked him. And they spit on him. They took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And next week we'll talk about the crucifixion. Why don't you go to Psalm 2 one more time? We'll end on this. So when Jesus, what we just read in Matthew, is given over what does humanity do? They, they mock him. They abuse him. It's crazy how people are always complaining that they wish God would treat us better. I wish God would answer my prayers more and treat me better. But how do we treat God when we're finally given a chance to be in control over him? We are cruel. It is in us a desire to break our chains question, do you really want God to do unto you as you have done unto him? So if we were to look at the end of Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 talks about um, verse 3, let us burst their bonds and cast their cords. So this is where we are at Matthew. Verse 4 is where it's really not done yet. Verse 4 is not done yet. It's taken place. 
So while we mock God, look at what God does in verse 4. He who sits on the heavens laughs. Verse 5. He will then speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. You can mock him, beat him, but he's sitting on the throne right now. I'll tell a decree, the Lord said, you're my son. You're my son. I've begotten you. Ask of me, Jesus. I'll make the nations your heritage, the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Why? Because mockery is not going to last for much longer. And then look at this next verse, verse 11. The ESV, it says, serve the Lord with fear. I like how the King James and NIV say, they say, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. So the psalm starts off with anger of the nations that's irrational and unwarranted. It ends with the anger of God, which is justified and retributive. It gets worse. And it's right. That is why Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why I need to show you one more line. So the beginning I said, he came to the world and the world knew him not. He came unto the religious people, his own, and his own received him not. But there is one more group. And I think this, personally for me, is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Came to the world, and the world knew him not. Natural man is blind. They don't want him. They don't even care. Came to the religious person, and they didn't receive him because they're proud of themselves. However, but to as many as received him, John 3.16 says, Whosoever believes on his name, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, or the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. They're not born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but they're born of God. This group, if it heeds the warning of kiss the son, that means show him worship and adoration. Kiss the son, how? By believing in his name, you become a child. That doesn't make sense to me. We mocked him and beat him and spit on him. And yet he still loves us. Faith in Jesus means you are no longer of the world. You no longer are religious, so quit putting on a show. But you have joined the family of God. And when you join the family of God, your heart changes towards Jesus. He's your brother that you're awfully proud of. Question, has your heart changed? Has your heart changed? Or are you still self-absorbed and join in with the words of the crowd? And you're angry. Are you angry? 